we've been singing about the gospel of Christ. I want to lead us now in prayer. So would you join me, please, as we pray for our nation in this season, as we pray for God to move among us, and as we pray for some of our fellow churches as well in this time. Father, we come before you so grateful this morning for who you are and what you've allowed us to experience coming together. God, we are mindful that there are still uh, probably less than half of us together in this room. And we don't want to forget that. We are grateful for the live stream technology that allows so many to be tuning in at the same time to see and experience what's happening here. But God, we're grateful for those of us that are here this morning. Father, we recognize that we are in the midst of a global pandemic and that raises all sorts of thoughts and feelings and emotions for us, some of us incredibly fearful, some of us incredibly angry at the fear, all of us somewhere on that spectrum. Father, we're thankful and grateful that there are some indications that medications are coming, vaccines, the miracle of the human immune system. God, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The beauty of the mind and research that you have given us to develop medications, Father, we thank you today for these things. And God, I pray for an end to this pandemic that we are in. You ordain difficult things for our good. We know that. We embrace that. We accept that. At the same time, we recognize that bad things are bad, and pandemics and isolation are bad, and people getting sick are bad. We pray, Jesus, for healing. We pray for success and vaccines and medications being developed. We pray that there would be no uh, irrational rush to treatment that causes more harm than good. At the same time, we pray that you would expedite relief and recovery for millions. We've got to continue to pray for our national and especially state leaders here in our own state of Oregon. Uh, for Governor Brown, for the Oregon Health Authorities, they continue to make decisions, some of which have resulted in us being able to gather larger today than we have in some time, for which we're grateful Others still very difficult as the pandemic grinds on for us to live with. God, would you give them wisdom to know how to balance so many competing needs? Father God, as your church, I pray for your work in our midst right now. Holy Spirit, we pray not that you would come. We know that you are already here. You've told us you're, you're present where your people are gathered and you are seeking to do work, so we don't pray that you would come as much as we pray that you would attune our hearts to you, to your voice, to your leading, to what you would have for us this morning. For every person who is in, uh, on this campus or who is, is watching right now or perhaps even watching recording of this service later, God, as we come, we think of so many, so many issues that are, are, are weighing on us, so many items on our to-do list so many things we hope to see and achieve and accomplish, but, but God, it often doesn't occur to me that you have a to-do list for me, that you have things you seek to accomplish in the lives of every man and woman tuning in here, whether it's to find eternal life for the first time in your son or to grow more deeply in our relationship with you. Holy Spirit, attune our hearts, our ears, as it were, to hear your voice even more than the other voices around us. Holy Spirit, where there is a need to be convicted of sin, we pray that you do that work in us. Where there is a need to have our perspective enlarged or reframed, where we need to think about things differently and more in tune with your word, I pray that you would accomplish that in us. 
where there is a need to comfort weary souls and encourage lonely and broken hearts. We pray that you would do that in our midst. God, above all as a church, we pray that you would unify us, not because we all feel the same things or experience the same things or have the same viewpoints on every issue, but because we are redeemed people, baptized into faith in Christ, covenant committed together to be the family of God at harvest for, your good, for our good and for your glory. God, may that unify us as a church. May you unify us in the mission. Lastly, this morning, Father, I want to pray the same prayer for so many other churches in our association here in the Northwest. I think of uh, fellow pastors I've been able to speak to just these last couple weeks, even here in Hillsboro for uh, Pastor Dave over at First Baptist in Hillsboro, Pastor James down the road here at Sunrise. We thank you for the partnership and the fellowship as churches that we have together with these other like-minded churches. We pray for their success as well as they stream their services now and as they gather as many people in their buildings as they can right at this very moment. God, would you, would you show up? Would you speak? Would you lead powerfully through them as through us? That our city would see the glory of a God who would come this Christmas time in a way that is maybe new, maybe fresh, maybe easier to tune out in the past. But God, I pray that desperate, frustrated, hurting souls now would find in us a picture of how much you love us and them, the truth of how you pursue us and them. And I pray that this Christmas would be a marked different for thousands of citizens in Hillsboro through the ministry of churches like ours. God, use us, we pray. For our good, for your eternal glory, we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Just before we dive in to looking at the Bible this morning, I just want to mention one uh, thing by way of kind of announcement. It's really a little bit more of, of shepherding our life together as a church. Next Sunday is our typical uh, Sunday where once a month we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We take communion. So uh, particularly for those of you currently watching on the live stream or if you're here this morning and for some reason you're not planning to be here physically next Sunday uh, and you're going to be watching us on the live stream, I want to encourage you if you would like to participate with us in the Lord's Supper to prepare for that now and make sure that you have communion elements available. Of course, when you come, we provide that for you so you don't have to remember it's a communion Sunday. It's just laid out. But if you find yourself at home watching and you're like, oh my goodness, it's communion uh, and you're tempted to just grab whatever's available, uh, I think it's important to realize that the Lord chose bread and wine for a reason and we don't want to drift from that. So make sure you've got bread on hand, uh, wine if that's an appropriate choice for you or at least red grape juice, which is essentially the same thing, just not quite as potent. And uh, make sure you're ready to go for next Sunday. A couple of months ago, uh, my wife, Amy, and I were over at our friend uh, Dana and Julie's house. You guys are here somewhere. There you are. I saw you guys over there. I got these lights in my face. And uh, we were hanging out together and playing some games. They're like, hey, we got some games. You want to play games? We're like, yeah, sure. What about this game? We've never heard of it. What about that game? We've never heard of it. We just like, we realize we don't play games in our house. There's something wrong with us, but that's not what this is about. Um, we said, yeah, sure, teach us a new game. So they brought out this game. I don't remember what it was called. And they're like, okay, so here's how, now, have you ever done this? Like you sit down with somebody and they're like, we're going to teach you how to play a game that we know and you have no clue what this game is. Anybody ever been there? It's kind of like, it's fun. I mean, it's cool to learn something new and have fun with people, but you're like, it's so disorienting at first. You're like, okay, first of all, what is this game, right? 
What's the object? I don't want well, to win, right? Of course, I guess. What does winning mean in this game, you know? Um, what's the object of the game? Um, do, do you score points in this game? The most points wins, the least points wins, the person who goes out first wins, the person who goes out last wins. Like, what, what, is, what does it even mean? You have to learn everything kind of from scratch. And then, of course, there's the mechanics of the game, right? So then there's all these like little pieces, and it's this little like community or city building simulation kind of game. So there's all these little cards with all these different kinds of like buildings and city services. And I'm like, okay, I'm getting that, but what's this and what's that? And, and you, you, you play these? How do you play them? When? I mean, just like the, the basics of, of like, how does this game work? What do you even do to play this game? And then just as you're starting to get the handle on that, of course, th- there's the issue of strategy, right? Okay, I get the mechanics, but, but what's a good move versus a bad move? I barely even know what the object of the game is yet, so I just, you feel lost. You're like, I have no idea what to play, when, and where. Well, because if you put these three together, it's really good, but if you put these three together next to that one, suddenly that's bad. Oh, now i got to remember all this, right? And you're just like confused and lost and bewildered. So like we played through it once. I'm pretty sure I didn't win. I'm not sure about that. But, you know, it was like, okay, well, well, now let's play through it again a second time, now that you have some basic idea. And of course, the second playthrough was much better. At least you have some concept of what you're doing now, but still, like, the strategy and how it all works is elusive. Like, every other move, you're like, oh, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to, oh, okay, I misunderstood that. I thought it was, you know, this. And then just when I was getting comfortable, Dana's like, okay, I'm bored, let's play a different game, because that's how Dana rolls. So I'm like, man, you were just afraid I was going to beat you the third time. That's what was really going on, right? I don't think it happened. Anyway, I was thinking about that this week, because I wonder how often our church experience is similar. I wonder how often people experience church in much the same way. Like, here we are, but, but like, what are we doing? <laughs> We're trying to win for Jesus. Great. What does that mean? What is winning for a church? Um, it, it, what's the object of the game? Is it to have as many happy customers as possible? <laughs> Fill your building with happy people who pay bills. That's winning. If you don't have happy people who are paying bills, we're losing. Is that the object of the game? Is the object of the game to make mature disciples of Jesus. Those are two very different goals. What does winning look like? Uh, not to mention that, how, how does, how does the, the mechanics of the game go? How do you score points in the game of church? Of course, it's not a game, but bear with the analogy. If there even are points to score, or if you're not scoring points, then, then what is it you're doing? How is this game you know, played? And we all see the pieces, right? You, you go to churches and you see preaching every Sunday. You see um, and hear music. You see baptizing. You see people taking communion together. Uh, you see small groups, people gathering in smaller groups to talk about life and, and study the Bible. You see people praying for one another. You see people going out of their way to, to care for one another and, and meet one another's tangible and physical needs. All good core parts of, of like the life of our church. There's all the pieces out there on the board, but like what are all the pieces? And then the strategy part. When do you play which piece? What is it all doing? How does it all fit together? Or are we just playing pieces? Because, you know, you sit there and you go like, I don't want to look like the one person at the table who doesn't know how to play. So I'm seeing all these people play this piece and I have a piece that looks like that, so I'm going to play it. Hope that was right. It was right. Good. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just doing what we do. Have you ever experienced church that way? 
During this season, we're studying the New Testament book of Acts together as a church because, because the book of Acts shows us who we really are as a local church. It is the, the story, it is a history of how the first church in history came together, how it constituted itself and what it did, and then how the gospel spread by the power of the Spirit through that church to other places and started other churches. It's the, the history of how the, the movement, the Christian movement, the movement of the gospel really started. And so and by looking at that, we see what makes a church a church especially when there aren't some of the givens culturally that we've come to expect because it was all new back then. So, so what did they choose to do? Who are they? How did they function? By looking at that, we learn who we are to be and how we are to think about our functioning together. And that is so important. Honestly, it's always important. It's always important. But maybe now, in the middle of a pandemic more than ever before, because so much of how we normally function as churches has either been stopped or significantly curtailed, and even the parts that we can still do, it's harder to do them. It's harder to do them. And so it's a good time for us to step back and say, okay, but those are just all the pieces on the table. Let's pull back and say, who are we? What are we doing? What's the point? How do you win this game? What we've said throughout this uh, second chapter of the book of Acts, we're going to be in that three Sundays, last week, this week, and the next week leading up to Christmas. And we've said, really, this chapter kind of summarizes, I think, a lot of the message of the entire book. And my crack at, at, at kind of summarizing that in a single sentence is this. If the book of Acts tells us nothing, and Acts chapter 2 tells us nothing, it tells us that God's mission is to make disciples, uh, learner, followers. God's mission is to make disciples, and he does that, through three elements, by spreading the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit through the local church. I really think that's what this, this chapter is trying to tell us. I think that's what this whole book is trying to tell us. What God is about in the world is making disciples by spreading the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit through local churches like ours. All three of those elements come out in this second chapter. Last week, we saw the first 21 verses that focus on the coming of the Holy Spirit. We called that the power for God's plan. God's making disciples by spreading the gospel in the power of the Spirit. This is not just something we can do on our own. God's Spirit has to change hearts in order for the kingdom of God to grow and for the mission of God to be accomplished. Today we're going to see the gospel, that is the content of God's plan. God is making disciples by the spreading of the gospel and the next week we'll see how he's doing that through the church, which is both the product and the platform for God's plan. That is, when people respond to the gospel, um, they become followers of Jesus, they gather into churches, so the gospel produces churches, but then it's through those churches that the gospel continues to spread. We'll see that next Sunday. Today we need to understand, and I think that this text is going to lead us to understand, the content of God's plan. What is this gospel message that is spreading that the Holy Spirit is empowering to make disciples of God through local churches? And what we're going to see this morning is, is three things. We're going to see the need that we have for the gospel, because after all, the gospel is the cure to a disease. It's the answer to a question. It's the solution to a problem. So we have to understand what the question and the problem is first to rightly understand the solution. So we'll see first the need for the gospel, secondly the content of the gospel, what it is, and lastly the appropriate response to the gospel. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 2. If you're not there already, we're going to pick up the narrative where we left it off last week in verse 22, and this morning we will go down to verse 
uh, 41. I'm going to read this uninterrupted, and then we'll back up. We'll try to notice a few things from that. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. This is once again Peter uh, preaching on the day of Pentecost, just after the Holy Spirit had come. There's a crowd gathered. Peter stands up and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, quoting now from Psalm 16 in the Old Testament, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter resuming again, he says, Brothers, I may tell you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us until this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are, yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Quite the speech. Look at their response. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word for us this morning. And God, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word that will change our hearts, increase our love, and alter the course of our destiny. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Three things to notice about the content of Peter's sermon. Last week it was the Holy Spirit comes, there's all this miraculous speaking in tongues. We talked about that. They say, what's going on? He explains the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and he says it's to get them, verse 21, the verse before where we started today, it's to get them to this point. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, quoting from the Old Testament prophet Joel. Now today's text, he unpacks what that means in light of who Jesus is. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the message, guys. 
This is the message you need to understand and respond to. This is the gospel. Three things to notice about it. First, our need for the gospel. Our need for the gospel. What we're going to see today is that God's mission will be accomplished when we get the gospel right. God's mission will be accomplished when and only when we get the gospel right. So if God is going to create disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit by the spread of the gospel, then we've got to make sure we're spreading the right gospel, the right message. So to get the gospel right, it starts with getting our need for the gospel right and then getting the content of the gospel right and getting the response to the gospel right. Thankfully, the Bible has not left us unclear on these points. These first couple of verses focus on our need for the gospel and particularly the need of Peter's original audience there. Notice in verse 22 through 24. In recounting the key events of the gospel message, that is Jesus' death and resurrection, we'll talk about that in a moment, Peter begins by emphasizing the direct guilt of his audience. Interesting. Probably not the first thing you're trained to do when you're trying to win friends and influence people, right? Let me start off by telling you guys how awful a predicament you're in and how much your fault it really is. Dude, I want a more positive message, man. I'm going to go listen to somebody else. Peter needs an editor, right? But apparently he doesn't think so. It strikes me, maybe because I'm a 21st century American, it strikes me as really odd that he starts this by going straight after everything I'm about to tell you is your fault. You! I mean, he's, he's pointed about it, right? Repeatedly. His men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you, by God, who God did this through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus you crucified by the hands of lawless men. And then even at the very end, down in verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He does not want them to miss this point, right? He says to this crowd of thousands of people, guys, the first thing you need to understand is that you are in trouble with God, and it's your fault. You've got to understand the need of your condition before God. Be very clear about that. That's how he begins. It's interesting that Peter tells them all that they are guilty for crucifying Jesus. It's not that necessarily he's saying, I took, I took a head count. I mean, this is like a month and a half after Jesus had been killed. And here he's talking to thousands of people. It's not like he's saying, I, I took a snapshot from my drone at the cross to see the faces in the crowd, and I've compared that to the snapshot through my digital comparison and facial recognition software, and I have verified that every single one of you were standing at the foot of the cross yelling for Jesus to be killed. He's not necessarily saying that you all as individuals are equally implicated in the events that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. Nonetheless, he says, you crucified him by the hands of the lawless Roman authorities. So it's not that they were individually clamoring for Jesus' death necessarily, although many of them likely were. Rather, they're part of a larger nation, the Jewish people at the time, who was accountable before God to recognize the Messiah, the Savior, when he came because they had been given God's word to explain who the Messiah was going to be. And when he came, they rejected him as a group, and they caused him to be killed as a group, and so they're guilty as a group. Therefore, they're guilty before God. Peter wants them to see that. You as a group have a guilt, and you individually play some part in that. You're part of this group. 
The principle that comes clear out of this, although our particular circumstances today are somewhat different, we're not necessarily ethnic Jews, we have not necessarily been given God's word as a chosen people, as an ethnic race, that's not how it operates anymore, and yet the principle is still the same. The principle is the same. The gospel is a solution to mankind's greatest problem. So if we're going to actually get the content of the gospel right, we have to get the problem right. What problem is being solved here? What disease is being cured here? The good news of the gospel begins with the bad news that we, both individually and collectively together as members of a human race that is bent to reject God's authority and live for ourselves, we, both individually and collectively, are guilty before God for rejecting him. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Consider Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. What's the, what's the verdict? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And the New Testament echoes the same sentiment even more succinctly in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friends, that is our condition when God looks out on us from heaven. He sees rebels, guilty rebels, unjustified in their sin and deserving justly of punishment. That's our problem. That's our predicament. That's not the way we tend to think in our day and age. There's at least a couple of trends in our culture that may or may not feel familiar to us as individuals, but we'll probably recognize them. They're out there. They're kind of polar opposites, and they both pull us away from this sort of an understanding. The, the first trend would be um, our, our general tendency to think of ourselves as modern Americans. We tend to think of ourselves more as imperfect people, for sure, uh, perhaps even broken or, or wounded people, but not fundamentally flawed. We tend to see our hurts and our pains and our shortcomings more a product of things that have been done to us or a result of environments around us rather than at the core of who we are. Now, it's true that things done to us and environments around us can have a detrimental impact on our lives. Of course, that's true. It's not that that's wrong. It's just that we tend to assume then, without necessarily putting words to it, that we're fundamentally good, rational people. We've just had a lot of bad, unfortunate things happen to us. And so, consequently, we tend to seek out therapeutic support for our failings, not fundamental character reinvention. Because we don't think the problem is fundamentally in our character. We think it's been in our environment and experiences. This can, doesn't always, but this can often lead to people misunderstanding the gospel of Jesus, even when they sit in churches and sing the same songs and say, I'm all about Christianity, because from a therapeutic mindset, the gospel can sound a lot like, hey, being a Christian means God's power in my life that's going to lead me to a stronger marriage, a happier family, a more successful life, greater contentment and joy. If that's it, sign me up. Jesus is making me the best me I can be. I'm a Jesus person. I'm believing the gospel, right? Am I? The gospel is the cure for the disease of being guilty of offense toward God. 
That's where it starts. There's another trend that's almost a polar opposite of this. There are a number of people in our society today who tend to to live well on purpose and assume that that should be enough for God. So this is almost a problem not so much of like underconfidence, of of seeing that I'm a broken person and I just need help and support. This is more like seeing that I'm actually a pretty good person and I've got my life fairly well together. Again, most people probably wouldn't say I'm perfect, but I mean, come on. (laughs) Come on, I am far nicer and far more compassionate to far more people than I have to be and I am far nicer and more compassionate to more people than most people around me that I'm seeing. Therefore, what's the problem? Why should I go to church? Or maybe I do, and I'm fine with it. It's just part of me being the kind of good person I think I ought to be. And that ought to be enough for God. But consider this. Imagine for just a moment. Uh, you've come over to my house to do some work for me, and it's summertime, it's sweltering hot, you have to use your imagination this time of year for that, okay? And you're out there like digging some ditches for me, I'm putting in a new sprinkler system or something, and you're helping me out, and you're working for a couple hours, and as the afternoon goes on, the sun's beating down on your back, and the sweat's pouring, and your muscles are getting tired, you're like, oh man, I'm gonna be sore tomorrow, my back's gonna hurt, but hey, this is good, I'm helping out my friend, and, and, and I go inside, and I'm like, water break in 10 minutes, okay? And you're like, oh, sounds awesome. So I go in there, and, and I come out with this huge filter, and it's just like all frosty on the outside. The most like crystal clear, like mountain spring, whatever fancy water you could possibly imagine. And it's just ice cold. And you're watching me pour it in a pitcher and you're going, ha, 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 10 minutes, break time's gonna be awesome. I can't wait to just go in there in the house for a second and sit down in the cool and the air conditioning and drink some water. So you just get going after it more and more and more and I break out the glasses. And now you're really hot and thirsty and bam, break time comes and you hear the water pour over those clinking ice cubes and you're like, that's like heaven. And you go inside and you're like, all right, I'm ready for my water. And I say, ah, one more thing, one more thing. I just gotta add one more thing to it. And I grab my measuring spoons, I take a teaspoon and I go dip it into the toilet bowl. Not the tank, the bowl, right? Where we, well, you get the idea. And I, and I take a teaspoonful out and I just put that in your glass. Shake it around. All right, break time. Here you go. You drinking that water? Not in your life. You just put sewage in my drinking water, right? If we wouldn't accept that water as clean, despite the fact that 99% of it is as crystal clear as you could possibly hope for, why would we expect God to ignore our lust, our arrogance, our bitterness toward other people, just because we're nicer to most people than we have to be most of the time. Understanding the gospel right. Getting the gospel right means getting the problem, our need for the gospel, right. The gospel is the cure to a problem that we all have, and the Bible says that that problem is that we are guilty of sin before God. Of course it's true that some people sin in different ways than others. Some people even sin more than others. Fine, all of that's irrelevant. Everybody is guilty of sin before God. And we need to hear according to Scripture. We need to understand, and we need to respond to and proclaim that need because one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin 
That's what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. And so while it's tempting to convince myself, maybe I'm not as bad as I really think I am, or maybe it's I'm hesitant to ever say to somebody else, hey, maybe you really need to grow in that area. Is that a problem because we're afraid it might offend? We need to understand it's important to get the gospel right, and it is the Spirit of God who brings conviction of that about. And there is a deep and sweet brokenness that only results when you come clean from God. There's nothing left to hide. There's no pretending. There's no weighing of things in my head and saying, how come God doesn't weigh them the same way? I'm just honest. God, you're right. I'm a sinner. I own it. You're right. I'm wrong. And just throwing yourself on the mercies of God, the merciful one, and experiencing gospel healing. Transformation begins when we get our need for the gospel right. That then leads us to the second point, and that is we've got to get not only our need for the gospel right, we need to get the content of the gospel right. What is the gospel? I've probably used that word over a hundred times already in this sermon. You'll probably hear it a hundred more. The gospel is just a shorthand way to refer to the central message of the Bible, the core message of Christianity. Gospel means good news. This is good news for the world. What's the good news? Starting in verse 25, Peter explains the gospel in a way that was very relevant to his first century Jewish audience. He says that Jesus' death, there at the end of verse 23, and his resurrection, which is what he spends most of his speech focused on in verses 25 all the way down to 36, both of these happened because God had a plan for them too. The good news is that from eternity past, God, knowing that we would rebel, put into place a plan to redeem rebellious and undeserving people. And that, redemption, that redemptive plan involved the death and the resurrection of God. He talked about it. He laid out that plan far in advance. In fact, in verses 25 to 28, you see him there quoting the Old Testament at length. This is a quote from Psalm 16. And yet he applies that to Jesus, especially verse 27. If you're in Acts 2.27, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. That's an Old Testament way of saying, you're not going to let me die and rot in the grave. Which is an interesting thing, because if you go back and read Psalm 16, it's clearly David, King David, who is writing this as a worship psalm, and in the immediate context, he's referring to himself as a prayer to God. So why would Peter, a thousand years after David's time, say, you know what, that was never really about David, that's about Jesus. Where is he getting that? Well, he tells us, actually. He tells us. He gives us two reasons why we need to understand that this is ultimately about Jesus. First of all is in verse 29, because David did die and his body did decay. So clearly, God never promised to prevent David from dying and his body decaying in the grave. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He didn't live forever. So Peter's first argument is clearly that promise wasn't ultimately to be fulfilled in him. But there's more than that. There's more than that. The main reason he, says, he, he makes that connection is that he alludes to 2 Samuel chapter 7, down in verse 30. Notice this. If you're in verse 30, he says, Being therefore a prophet, referring to David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, to David, that God would send one of David's descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, Jesus, was not abandoned to Hades. What's going on there? What's going on there is, is some Old Testament communication God had already done. 
Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had said to David the king that he would put one of David's descendants on the throne, not just for a season or even for a lifetime, but forever. And this true and greater son of David is what the Israelites had hoped for ever since King David's reign. God will send a savior, a Messiah, who will reign forever. And you know, you don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed to understand that if you're going to reign forever, that means you have to live forever, right? So apparently David was going to have a descendant who was never going to die. He was not going to die and go away. His body was not going to rot in the grave, but he was going to live forever so that he could reign forever. Peter here is doing what the Old Testament prophets did. He's doing what Jesus did, and he's doing what we should do. He's reading the Bible messianically, we say. That is, he's reading the Bible with the understanding that the whole thing is a story about how God is sending a Messiah. And so he's reading each individual part in light of how does it contribute to that story. And suddenly it helps him see the individual parts in a new light, a more accurate light. His point, God planned this all along. Yes, people like Judas Iscariot and the Pharisees were responsible for the death of Jesus. Yet the same, at the same time, his death happened by God's design. God planned this. It was God's plan that he come to earth as the man Jesus. It was God's plan that the God-man Jesus die in our place to pay the death penalty we should have paid. But he pays it in our place. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And it was God's plan to raise him up from the dead to live forever so that he didn't just die and stay dead and now he's gone, but rather that he gets to live and reign forever for all eternity. This is how God redeems sinful people like us by and only by the work that he himself did in our place. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And Peter says, guys, this is what God has been saying all along for thousands of years. It's finally happened. That's what you need to understand. That's the good news. Getting the content of the gospel right, of course, is essential, but the not-so-subtle implication of this is that this is the mission of the church. We need to not only get the gospel right for ourselves to make sure we're, we're responding to the correct message, but, but we need to make sure we have it right because this is all we have to offer people. This is all the church has to offer people. Peter viewed their current situation in light of God's overall plan, and so should we. That's what he's trying to get that original crowd to do. You guys are seeing stuff you don't understand. You've got to read God's word. See what's currently happening to you in light of what God promised. Guys, God is moving this thing forward. God was in control during the most catastrophic event the disciples could have conceived of. Jesus' arrest, torture, and execution. The Bible tells us that's one thing that God does with hard times with painful times. He's trying to make new disciples out of people who don't follow him. And he's trying to make more mature disciples out of people who already do. Church, this is our mission. Making disciples by spreading the gospel and the power of the Spirit as a church. This pandemic has been uh, painfully but wonderfully clarifying for me personally. 
I was telling some people this morning when we were gathered together to pray for the service, to pray for all of you before the service started. That to be really honest, particularly in the last month or two, I've had some really hard emotional moments. Many of you have too. I've talked to enough of you, I know that. But I've been having them myself where I'm just like so frustrated, I'm ready to put my fist through a wall or just so discouraged or whatever. Like I've had more than one of those moments. I don't like them. And yet, God does good things in those times if we're willing to let him. One of the things that God, I believe by his grace, has made clear to me recently is that a, a few years ago, our, our staff was, was talking a lot about being a church that is a disciple-making church. That, that's our mission. Like We were reading books about it together. Uh, we were looking at all of our ministry activities and saying, how do we make sure we're not just a church that's doing stuff? Because that's the, the natural gravitational pull of churches over time. We just get doing stuff, and it becomes about doing stuff, and everybody's busy and hopefully happy, but we may not necessarily be making disciples. So like, how do we make sure that doesn't happen in our church? How do we make sure that what we're doing is making disciples? We're having good, productive conversations about that. And to be really honest, we hit a point where I feel like I got my eye off that ball a little bit. I did. No, no one event, um, no one big change of anything. It's just more like looking back, I realized, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot less. I've been talking about it a lot less. I mean, a few years ago, we were preaching sermons about it. We were talking about it in our family gatherings. I'm like, when's the last time I said anything about being a church that makes disciples? Gosh, I think it's been months. as many other very good things in ministry just kind of dominated my vision. Friends, COVID hurts. But it's forced me to ask with refreshed clarity, God, why is harvest here? Are we just going to get mad at what we perceive to be government overreach? Or if you're on the other side of that issue, what you perceive to be people not taking a pandemic seriously? Are we just going to kind of like get through this so that we can get back to normal? Is that our vision? Is that my vision? Man, God, why are we here? What do you want us to do? One of the things we've been saying all fall is that our environment has changed significantly, but our mission has not. That really begs the question, what's the mission? And I'm up here preaching that. Our environment has changed, but our mission is not. And then I'm looking in the mirror going, do you know what the mission is? I believe the answer is that God wants us to join other faithful churches the world over in his mission to make disciples by spreading the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit through the church. Are we making disciples? And that's how it can often work. Pain can be wonderfully clarifying if we let it. C.S. Lewis famously said in his book, The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The good news is out there all the time, but a lot of times people aren't interested because I'm doing fine on my own, thank you. I'll get to that some other day or maybe I don't care. Suddenly everything blows up and I'm going, what's life all about? And God's like, thank you, now you're finally listening. <laughs> my message hasn't changed, but will you listen to me? What a joy to step back and breathe deep and say, okay, God, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. Friends, is God using this pandemic or maybe some other pain, frustrating, difficult circumstance in your life to speak his words of life to you? Let me ask that question a little bit more personally and with a little bit more precision. What is your next step 
in being a disciple of God. Maybe your next step is, I need to become a disciple of God. I don't even know what that means. I'm not really sure how this whole thing works. i got to figure out what it means to follow uh, Jesus and to be a Christian. That's your next step. Respond to the gospel. Maybe your next step is to grow further as a disciple. I am a disciple of Jesus, but I need to go back to the gospel. I need to give him more of my life. I need to embrace what he's doing and the work in me. What is that work? Man, I don't know. Do you? What is your next step of faithfully being a disciple who makes disciples of Jesus? How do we respond? And that question leads us to the third and final point this morning. We, we need to be clear on the need for the gospel. We need to get our need for the gospel right. We need to get the content of the gospel right. The death and resurrection of Jesus accomplishes our redemption by God's eternal plan. But lastly, we need to get our response to the gospel right. What do you do with this information? And that's how this passage ends. How does good news for the world become good news for me? We think of it in medical terms. Once we've correctly diagnosed our problem and we know our need, and the doctor has prescribed the correct solution, uh, the correct medication, the correct treatment, now the question is, will you take it? Will you embrace it? Will you do it? So how do you respond to the gospel? We need to get our response to the gospel right. And it's interesting that in these final few verses, they're cut to the heart. The conviction of sin is there, verse 37. They say, brothers, what do we do? And verse 38 is really interesting. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now there is a lot going on in that verse. Many Bible scholars have pointed out rightly, I think, that what Peter is doing here is he is really unpacking in verse 38 what he said in verse 21, okay? So pause in verse 38 for a second. Let's go all the way back to verse 21. That was the last verse we read last week, quoting from the Old Testament prophet Joel. So it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is now updating what it means to do that in light of who Jesus is. So how do we call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Peter says that's the answer, but he doesn't just tell them to do it. He tells them how. Briefly notice a couple of things in this verse. What does it mean to call on the name? What name are we calling on? And what does it mean to be saved? He describes all three of them. Uh, the first, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. What does it mean to call upon? He gives us two very clear actions there, to repent and to be baptized. This is how you become a disciple of Jesus. You repent of the sin you are feeling convicted of, you know is wrong, and then you are baptized. Just briefly, what, is, what does repent mean? Repent, the word means to, 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 to turn away, to turn around. Basically, the idea is there's this old me, sinful me. And I had my own versions of sin that were unique to me, but the bottom line is, yes, I'm a sinner. And that old me that I know well, I'm done with. I'm done trying to live for myself. I admit, God, you are right. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty before you. I've come clean, and I don't want to be that anymore. Leave that behind. God, help me leave that behind. Make me a new person. That's the idea of of repenting. Most often we do that in prayer, even though repentance is sometimes a gradual process. It is most helpful when it comes to a cemented uh, finality when we pray, and it is most helpful, it's not biblically required, it's most helpful to pray in the presence of at least one other person. Yes, I'm acknowledging to God, I am a sinner, I'm done with that, I want Jesus to forgive me, and I want to follow him now. That's what repentance most often looks like. 
So he says, repent. (laughs) By the way, that's why you can see getting the need for the gospel is so important. Because if I don't think I have anything to be forgiven from, what am I repenting for? We've got to get our need for the gospel right. We've got to get the gospel right. We've got to get the response right. The right response is repentance. And then it's baptism. Now, why, why baptism? Baptism is an essential ordinance of the church. That just means it's something Jesus ordained. It's something he told us to do on a regular basis. It's one of only two, baptism and then the Lord's Supper. Once I have repented, I am to be baptized. Why? Well, we've preached entire sermons on the the specific meaning of baptism in the past. We will do so again. I don't have the time to do that this morning, so let me just hit the highlights of what's really going on here so that we can get a sense of what the Bible's saying. To be baptized communicates primarily three things, immersive identification, death and resurrection, washing clean from our sins. Briefly, here's, here's here's what's meant by that. Immersive identification. The word baptize literally means to immerse, to dunk, to submerge something in fluid, liquid. Uh, But it actually is a little bit more than that. It's not just to dunk something. It's to dunk something in a liquid such that what you dunked takes on some of the characteristics of the liquid. Like they would use this word um, when they were dyeing cloth. Here's this white cloth and you've got this vat of purple dye and you dunk the, the cloth in the dye for a while and when you pull it out, it's different. It's no longer white cloth. It's now purple cloth. The act of being submerged, submerged has changed the nature of the cloth. The cloth now identifies with the dye. You see, that's the idea. There are even close variations of this word that they would use when they would pickle vegetables, right? You take the cucumber and you soak it in the vinegar and whatever else for a while. When you pull it out, it's not a cucumber anymore. It's pickle, right? It's, it's different. It's, it's changed. If you want a simple idea, modern, of like what, what the, the basic idea of baptism is, think about marinating. That's what it is. Marinate. I mean, not that you literally physically marinate a person when you baptize them, because that would be very bad, but that's the imagery, right? The imagery is depicting the fact that to become a Christian means you are immersed in the grace and the truth of the gospel. You are immersed in Jesus, and that changes you. You've taken on the character of the Savior you are immersed in. So that's the first thing that baptism depicts. We are immersed in Jesus, and that changes who we are. Secondly, it depicts our death and resurrection. The Apostle Paul talks very clearly about this. As you go down into the waters of baptism, that depicts the old me, that, that me that I've repented of, that, that me has died and it's now being buried underwater, sort of like underground, being gone into the grave. And then when we come back up out of the waters, it's depicting resurrection. There's now a new me. The resurrection life of Jesus has been given to me and the life I now live, I now live by the power of God in me, Paul says. That's depicted in submersive baptism when you go down and come out. Lastly, Uh, the washing clean from our sins. Multiple parts of scripture talk about ceremonial cleansings, the idea of baptism depicting a washing, a cleansing, because the old dirty guilty me has all the dirt and the guilt has been washed away by the forgiving, atoning blood of Jesus. All of this is depicted in the simple act of baptism. It's not just getting water on us in a church service. It is a specific ordinance. Peter says, repent and be baptized. That's how you call upon the name of the Lord. Secondly, whose name are you calling on? (laughs) Call on the name of the Lord. It's quite interesting. In verse 21, where it says, call upon the, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, is quoting from the Old Testament prophet Joel. If you go back and you read the Old Testament prophet Joel in chapter 2, it says, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh. The Old Testament actually uses the proper name of God, a name that was so sacred to the Jews they wouldn't even pronounce it. 
So they would read Yahweh and they would say the Lord because they thought God's name was so sacred. Out of honor to him, they wouldn't even pronounce his holy name. If you call on the holy name of God, you will be saved in that day. But notice now here, back in Acts chapter 2. Peter has gone seamlessly, without missing a beat, from calling on the name of Yahweh in verse 21 to calling on the name of Jesus in verse 38. You repent and be baptized in the name, not of Yahweh, but of Jesus. Why can he make that immediate seamless shift? Very simply, because Yahweh and Jesus are seamless. Jesus is God and no one else can save us. So it's not good enough to come to church and be the best person. If we're going to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, we've got to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. He is the Savior. God himself come to be a man to die for our sins and rise for our life. And lastly, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which has become everyone who repents and is baptized in the name of Jesus What does it mean to be saved? He says two things here. It means that your sins are forgiven and you receive the Holy Spirit. Sins are forgiven. You come clean. There is is nothing to hide. There is no reason for shame anymore. Not because I'm a good enough person, but because Christ has been good enough for me. It's gone. It's done. All of that shameful, ugly, old stuff has been wiped out by the blood of Christ. The joy of forgiven sins is unspeakable, internal, joy. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. Something that was very rare in Old Testament times and usually temporary is now the new norm because of the ministry of Jesus. Every single person from the moment they repent of their sins and embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Bible says you receive the Holy Spirit. God literally moves into you. That means you have as much of the Holy Spirit as your pastor does. I don't have any special access to communion with God that is not available to somebody who came to Christ five seconds ago. That's a miracle, amen? That God himself moves in and starts leading you, speaking to you, teaching you, convicting you of sin, affirming his love for you, empowering you to live the way you should live and seeking to make you into a more mature disciple of Jesus. You are not on your own in that and you do not only have to rely on other people. God himself is in it with you from day one. That's what it means to be saved. So how do we get our response to the gospel right? We need to repent. We need to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. We don't have anything else to give the world. I'm talking about wrong. There's a lot of nice people in this church. <laughs> Anybody could come here and hang out with nice people, and that's good. We really don't have anything of eternal value to offer anybody. <laughs> Our value doesn't come from us being nice people. All we have is the message of God from before the foundation of the world, the means by which he makes disciples. That's our mission as a church, to spread the the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to ask the worship team to come back up here and pray as we think about, as a church, 
How do we respond in this Christmas season where we celebrate the coming of God to earth to live and die and make the gospel a reality? How do we respond? What is our next step in becoming more a disciple of Jesus? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come. Again, not in a literal way. You are God. You are omnipresent. You're everywhere. But that you would, that you would move, that you would change us. God, where we are self-reliant, I pray that you'd grant us repentance. Where we are sinful, to grant us forgiveness. Where we live for ourselves, would you grant us the joy of living for Christ as King? Fill us, God, and use us to spread the gospel to everyone that we come in contact with so that the kingdom of God may increase to our eternal good and your eternal glory. It is to you we sing, it is you we love, and it is you we praise in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please, as we respond in song to ourselves?